Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. This week, we're asking, are networks the key to power? From the Medici family's powerful blending of politics and finance to Donald Trump's successful use of social media on his way to the White House, networks have played a vital role in the search for control. So, in any interconnected world, will power gradually shift away from centralised authority and into the hands of the masses, or will existing networks be used to further strengthen those hierarchies that benefit the few? Joining me to discuss this is Neil Ferguson, historian and prolific author, whose explorations in the history of powerful figures led him to the conclusion that networks are indeed indispensable. His latest book, The Square and the Tower, Networks, Hierarchies and the Struggle for Global Power, aims to pinpoint just how crucial they are. So, Neil, why did you call your book The Square and the Tower? I was casting around for a title other than Networks and Hierarchies, which was a bit of a mouthful, and I suddenly had a vision of Siena. Ever been to Siena? Yes, Beautiful Italian town. And it's the most perfect juxtaposition of a square and a tower in the world. And those are really the symbols that I have in mind when I talk about networks, because networks happen in town squares. That's where you meet, you trade, you converse, you have horse races. It's that kind of informal interaction. Uh, Hierarchical power tends to be housed in towers. Um, And so the, the argument of the book is that the relationship between the square and the tower is the central relationship in all of history, in all of human organization. Sometimes, in fact, Most of the time, the tower dominates, overshadows the square, and the orders given from the tower, in the case of Siena, from the Palazzo Publico, ultimately will compel the people in the square to do as they're told. But there are just some times when the networks get the upper hand, when the revolutionary crowd, for example, is in the square and the people in the tower have to flee for their lives. So that's the reason the book is called The Square and the Tower. It's As the subtitle says, it's about the struggle for power between networks and hierarchies. And you mentioned the Medici's. Now, to to most of us, that's a very clear example of of the tower. It is a towering family. It mixes politics and finance and funds the arts. Is it as clear cut as that? I mean, when you went back, particularly that early stage, relatively early uh, stage of political social organisation, do you see patterns that you would recognise today? Absolutely. The Medici come to power partly because they make a lot of money, but also because they intermarry with older, more established families. And so the network of Medici power is in some ways a classic early modern network of dynastic Mm. interrelationship. If one asks the question, where have we seen this more recently, Well, think only of powerful families in American politics, the Kennedys, 
the bushes. We now have uh, an almost uh, Italian Renaissance phenomenon. A family that made money in uh, real estate appears to have uh, got itself into the White House. So I think one way of thinking about this is that in many ways that the family dynasty is the oldest form of network in human history. And, and when families were big and intermarriage was the key, that was how networks were built. That still goes on. But of course, in the modern world, other kinds of network matter more. I suppose I was at least expecting those early examples of intermarriage to preserve power would lead us to a talk of networks. I was a bit more surprised by someone else that you discuss at length in the book, and that's Henry Kissinger, the powerful former Secretary of State, whom you know well, you've written about a lot. Now, I would have thought that he was absolutely a player in hierarchies. So why do you make him a networker as opposed to an example of someone who came, albeit from the outside, but to command a hierarchy? Well, our networked age really began in the 1970s. That was the time when the great hierarchical superstates that had waged World War II against one another began to show signs of weakness. Uh, Watergate is a great crisis of the imperial presidency. Why is it that Kissinger emerges as such a dominant player during and after Watergate, straddling both the Nixon and Ford administrations, being described in Time magazine as the indispensable man. The argument I advance in this book, and I think I'll take it further in volume two of the biography I'm writing, is that Kissinger understood before others of his generation that the world was shifting from hierarchies to networks, that it didn't really matter where you were in the org chart of the federal government, uh, whether you were national security advisor or secretary of state. The key thing was your network. He was quite keen on the hierarchy in the org chart at the time. He well, fought brutally for power within the administration. But how did he do that? That's the key. You see, Kissinger was always very sceptical about the bureaucracy, indeed mistrusted the bureaucracy throughout his career. What he does the minute he gets to the White House in 1969 is to make sure that he has a network that extends beyond the bureaucracy and around the bureaucracy, for example, to the press. What are the strongest relationships that Kissinger forms in his time in government? It's not to Richard Nixon or Gerald Ford. It's actually to Anwar Sadat and Zhou Enlai. So, I think I'm right in arguing that, that Kissinger understood the possibilities of networks at a time when the people around him were still organisation men. Consciously or not, you talk to him a lot. You, you, you've informed yourself to do these magisterially long biographies that you're doing. Does he say to you, well, I understood what I was doing? Or do you think that people do these things instinctively and that we then later, or biographers like yourself, see the pattern? At the time, Kissinger talked a lot in speeches about the growing interdependence of the world. This was before anyone used terms like globalization. I think he instinctively was a networker because he didn't like hierarchy. He didn't like bureaucracy. His first encounter with government in the early 60s was as a part-time consultant to John F. Kennedy. And I think Kissinger learned the hard way that if you just play by the rules of the org chart, you're done. Because he did. I mean, he basically deferred to Mac Bundy, who was then national security advisor. And as I showed in volume one of Kissinger, he was completely sidelined and marginalized. I think the second time around in, in 69, Kissinger understood that the game in Washington was changing and it wasn't enough simply to hold an office like Secretary of State. He was able to completely marginalize the Secretary of State 
uh, that Nixon initially appointed, William Rogers, uh, by making the position of national security advisor much more important than it was supposed to be. And I think that was through the network. So Kissinger inspired this book in many ways. I wanted to understand better how networks operate. And the only way to do that was A, to read up on network science, and then B, to see a kind of long-run history of networks to see how they work through the ages. And how did you deal with networks outside the West? And I'm thinking here particularly of China, which in some ways seems to ape your thesis of the increasing power of the networks with its own social networking companies, etc., but at the same time keeps absolute social control. We had an interviewee in, uh, recently uh, from a big, a big technological investor in China, Chinese guest, who was very, very worried when we brought up the subject that AI would lead to even greater state control. Although a minute earlier, he'd been talking about the fantastic potential uh, of AI to, to link people more and to make communication more easily. How did you go at that? In the book, I try to show the very different path that China has taken, different not only from the US, but from Europe. The Chinese understood that if they let in the big American network platforms, they would risk the future of their own regime. And they quickly acted to keep them at bay and build their own versions. So instead of Fang, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, you get in China BAT, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, which in many ways mirror what the big American companies do. And as a result, China has its own quite distinct social network structure online. And the difference is that that social network structure is available uh, to the Communist Party. All the data that Chinese users give to WeChat or any other app or owned by, operated by the likes of Jack Ma those data are available to Xi Jinping too. So in China, the hierarchy that is the Communist Party... Are is very... that still a network then? Or is that is well, just something the... that must no, be a word here's... in between a network and a hierarchy? You could probably come up with a better one than me. Well, in, in technical terms, it's the hybrid, the, the hierarchical network. And you see that in nature. And I want to make this clear because economist readers and listeners can cope with this. There isn't really a dichotomy, strictly speaking, between hierarchies and networks. A hierarchy is a special kind of network where one or more nodes have extremely high centrality, are dominant, and all the other nodes have to go through them. That's really what a hierarchy is. And a truly hierarchical system is very nervous of any networking that doesn't go through the dominant nodes. We're really talking here about the difference between hierarchical networks and distributed networks. And what's happened in China, this fusion, in effect, between the hierarchical Communist Party and the social networks is a perfect illustration of that point. What about six degrees of separation? You said at the launch of your book here in London that it was in the room. You were making a bit of a joke about who's in the room. And you said, well, it's probably about three degrees of separation. And that sent me thinking, was six degrees always just a, a number plucked roughly from the air? And the idea that you now say, well, networks have become tighter, perhaps more intense. So it's maybe three degrees of separation. Are we just playing with numbers here? Or is there any numerical basis to this? There is, in fact, a basis for six degrees of separation. Though it started life as a Hungarian short story, and then it was just speculative. Uh, but it turned out to be right. American sociologists back in the 1960s, a man named Milgram, ran the experiment with chain letters. Essentially, he, he would get random people in the American Midwest to try to communicate with someone they didn't know at all, a stockbroker in Boston. And the experiment revealed that there were somewhere 
between five and seven degrees of separation. So six degrees of separation uh, wasn't a bad description of the small world. And the amazing thing is that now we have two billion people on Facebook. There are just 3.57 degrees of separation between Facebook users. So it's a smaller world than it was before as a result of social networks online. How do we apply this to politics? We talk and we write here at The Economist a lot about the role of social media in politics. We've certainly done so a a lot when it came to to Donald Trump and the run-up to the presidential election and the role of social media. Still very contentious, actually, trying to work out even what happened, let alone what view to take of it. I mean, for some people, social media helped create, inverted commas, the president. Do you agree with that? I know you you follow Trump closely uh, as well when you were in America most of the year. Well, I do think that the network platforms, particularly Facebook and Twitter, were crucial. And if they had not existed, he would not be president. A great many people, after the fact, have theories about why Donald Trump became president. These people turn out to have been quite wrong before the fact about the probability of his winning. So I kind of discount the ex-post explanations. I prefer an observation that I made before the election, uh, which was that Trump dominated Hillary Clinton on the network platforms. He had massively more followers on Twitter and Facebook. And this was one of the few clear predictors that he was going to win. If you just went with conventional data, as the political scientists in almost every American university did, you looked at the polling data, you did your kind of math on the uh, electoral college, and you predicted with 90% confidence that she was 90% likely to win. And this was just crazy wrong. Now these same people who were wrong say, ah, well, we need to understand about populism and inequality, et cetera, et cetera, the anxieties of the white working class. No, no, it's simple. It's very simple. Trump's campaign understood how to use the new network platforms and Clinton's did not. And that's why he won. And if you take away that one thing, the result's clearly going to be a Clinton victory because she outspent the man two to one. They had way more resources in the Clinton campaign. A conventional presidential election would have been won by Clinton. But Facebook and Twitter changed everything. But if Facebook and Twitter change everything, and if networks are now driving politics to that extent, it would suggest that the idea of a kind of conventional politics is in decline and that some of these networks might also be coming into play quite harmfully. I think this is a cause for grave concern. Let's face it, it wasn't just the Trump campaign that was using the Facebook advertising tools to target its message on voters in swing states. It was Russian intelligence that was also doing it. And so we immediately enter what's, uh, I oh, think, the most the controversial subject. Of course, the administration would deny that. You think they're wrong to deny that? Well, I mean, it's obviously the case because it was admitted even uh, last year by the intelligence agencies that it was going on. So it's absurd for anyone to deny it. The question is, the full extent of the intervention. And we already know from revelations in in just the last few weeks just how much the Russians spent. We haven't yet seen the advertising that they bought, but they're going to have to reveal that. It's just absurd for Facebook to keep that back. So the process of revealing what happened in 2016 is still ongoing. But I think I can say with confidence, as I said last year, that this is really the crucial thing. And it is far from good news because one of the striking features of giant, very 
fast networks is that the stuff that goes viral is not necessarily true. In fact, uh, extreme views and fake news are more likely to go viral on network platforms than the boring old truth. And for someone who's written a book on networking, and I have perhaps led you down a rather unfair rabbit hole, but it doesn't sound too great at the moment, does it? I mean, you have a magnification of things that may not be true, leading to political outcomes, which may or may, may, may not be good things, but they would appear to be being influenced in a way that the classical electoral structure didn't envision. So why are you so confident in the future of networking? Oh, don't get me wrong, my book is far from a kind of cheerleading celebration of networks. The argument of the book is that most of history has been characterised by a tension between hierarchies uh, and networks, towers and squares. And we're in a classic episode of disruption of hierarchical structure by newly empowered networks. Did you come out of this book feeling differently about either our interpretation of hierarchies or networks. So someone who was you know, helping us prepare your interview on, on our team said, well, hang on a minute, I'm actually getting fonder of hierarchies <laughs> the more I read this book. Otherwise, we'll never get anything done. Imagine if The Economist was run without an editor. Picture, if you will. But it was quite interesting that I know you, you say you don't see a... a, a yeah, you would have to be on one side or, or the other. But did you then start to think that hierarchies may become reinvented through networking. That's the lesson of history. So the conclusion of the book is, do not wish for a networked world. Don't expect world order to come from giant networks. Network theory predicts that you'll get polarization and crazy stuff going viral and increased inequality. So hierarchy actually is indispensable. And in the conclusion of the book, I say, from the vantage point of world order, thank goodness there's hierarchy, that the United Nations Security Council has five permanent members who are the first among equals in the international order. And luckily, Britain and the United States are two of the five. Phew. I can't let you leave without asking you about your personal network. Did you end up analysing how many people were on it? I think you have a reputation as something of a transatlantic networker, don't you? It's funny that I, I reflect on this in a candid preface. I, I was a misanthrope as a young man. I thought the point of a historian was to sit in archives alone and then go to a study and write alone and, uh, and have contact only as and when required with students and, if absolutely necessary, colleagues. And that was really the kind of life I led as an Oxford and Cambridge don. The reality about scholarship and perhaps any activity is that you benefit from interaction with others. This book was helped enormously by the fact that I could email, call up other people in other fields working on networks and say, can we get coffee? So I've come to be a believer in social networks, not so much online though email certainly helps, but with the kind of networks that are based on coffee and drinks and lunch and dinner, because we are social animals. We are actually designed by evolution to network, and there really aren't many ideas that don't improve from being discussed, uh, ideally over a decent glass of wine. So I've become a much more networked person partly as a deliberate strategy to expose myself to cleverer people than me. 
We gave you some lukewarm coffee and a plate of rather dry-looking biscuits, so it's you know it's the the, austeri- the austerity version of networking welcome. here at uh, Economist Radio. Neil Ferguson, uh, thank you very much. You've been listening to the Economist asks with me and McElvoy. Do let us know your thoughts on networks, hierarchies, and perhaps what's happening to both of them in London. This is the Economist. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.